There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Philly. Philly. Hey, Twisters, what up? Welcome back to Twisted Philly, The Good Doctor, Part 2. If you haven't yet listened to Part 1, go back and listen to that first. The Good Doctor is the story of Lois Vicarson. Lois was a psychiatrist at Philadelphia State Hospital at Byberry in 1971 when her girlfriend, Gloria Burnett, murdered their neighbor, a gentleman named Dr. Leon Weingrad, who was also a colleague of Lois's at the hospital where she worked. Weingrad made life difficult for Lois and Gloria in part because of his disdain for their relationship. They were a couple. Whether they were at work or at home, Weingrad spread his negativity about Lois and Gloria, including complaining to their superiors at Byberry about their romantic relationship and about Lois Fakarson's abilities as a psychiatrist. Although Gloria Burnett is the one who pulled the trigger, not once, but three times, killing Leon Weingrad in the parking lot of their Society Hill Towers apartment complex, Lois is the one who was sentenced to life in prison. Lynn Abraham, a name that many of you are probably very familiar with, was an assistant district attorney at the time, and she argued that Lois was the mastermind behind the murder scheme. She said Lois treated Gloria like a puppet. And although Gloria initially told police Lois had nothing to do with the murders, she testified against Lois in exchange for a lighter sentence. And then she recanted her testimony, admitting she made it up for leniency. But it didn't matter. Nobody listened to her. Lois Fakarson was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Not conspiracy to commit murder or manslaughter or even second-degree murder. Murder in the first degree. And in Pennsylvania, a life sentence means there is no possibility for parole. In 2016, Lois Fakarson was the oldest living female inmate serving a life sentence in Pennsylvania until she passed away in early January at the age of 91. If you listened to episode one, you know Lois Fakarson appealed her sentence for 15 years, in addition to fighting for pardons, commutation, or compassionate release. She even had the support of a parole advocate and Pennsylvania prison system leaders, and each time she was denied. Her last request with the Board of Pardons was in 2014, and Lois was 88 years old then. She wasn't a threat to anyone. I believe she was never a threat to anyone. Not when she was 88, nor when she was 48, when she started her life sentence. And she was denied her sixth and final request for pardon in 2014. Through my research about Lois for Carson's case, I learned about organizations in Pennsylvania that promote education and awareness about rehabilitation and reconstruction within our prisons and advocate for the improved qualities of life for inmates serving life sentences in our state. This is what I love about hosting Twisted Philly, unexplored territory. I'd never heard of Reconstruction Inc. or Fight for Lifers before researching Lois for Carson's case. I'd seen a video on YouTube. It was a TEDx video featuring a group called the Lady Lifers. It was something I watched, and it was a beautiful, powerful song, but I hadn't given it much thought beyond that. 
Like the story of Sylvia Segrist, my thoughts and opinions became open to so many other options. Now, I'm not trying to change your mind about the prison system in Pennsylvania with this episode, or in any other state for that matter. I'm not trying to get you to reconsider how you feel about inmates serving life in prison. I've never lost someone to gun violence or murder or at the hands of someone else. So it's easy for me, in a way, to be open-minded to perspectives I hadn't considered before. And that's what this episode is about. I want to share with you what I learned about these organizations and how my perspective has changed. What I realized through learning about the group, the Fight for Lifers, is I needed to listen more. I needed to think more and save my judgments and opinions until after I'd gotten more information. I also needed to consider each unique individual case, the inmate, the circumstances surrounding their crimes, the families affected by these crimes, and what level of rehabilitation and remorse could someone genuinely and authentically experience. I'm not suggesting every inmate serving a life sentence in our country, and especially in Pennsylvania, deserves compassionate release or special treatment or even a pardon. I am suggesting there may be more to the stories we see in the headlines. Not every story, not every inmate, but some, even if it's just one. And in the case of this story, that one person was Lois Fakarson, who led me to learn more. So how did I find out about the fight for lifers? Well, I was on social media, I was on Facebook, to be exact, reading about Lois Fakarson's memorial service, and that's how I found a woman named Ellen. I'm skipping her last name, not at her request, but it's just something I feel I need to do. Ellen manages a social media page for a woman named Sharon Wiggins. Sharon was a lifer at Muncie State Correctional Institute, and she was the woman who brought Ellen to the fight for lifers. As I mentioned in part one, the fight for lifers is an offshoot of the organization Reconstruction Inc. If you check out their website at reconstructioninc.org, there's a link that reads, changing ourselves to change the world. Their mission is to affect social change by forging individuals who were formerly incarcerated into an organized community of leaders working together to transform the criminal justice system, their communities, and themselves. Now that's a lot to take on within one sentence, within one mission statement. It's powerful and it's hopeful. Their mission starts from a position that rehabilitation is not only possible, but probable with the right support programs, and the people with whom they work can re-enter their communities and contribute in a meaningful, positive, and impactful way. There's three core programs within Reconstruction, Inc. One is an alumni ex-offender program working with ex-offenders as they re-enter the community. They offer regular meetings and support focused on principled, productive living after release. This is huge. I don't personally know any ex-offenders, or if I do, I'm not aware that they are actually an ex-offender. And I think about what it would be like to spend your days in a cell with little inspiration or motivation to change. How could you possibly transition back to your community and minimize the risk of recidivism without programs like this? The second program within Reconstruction, Inc. is called LEAD. And it's a youth-focused program with four different curriculums supporting four different age groups, from children as young as infants to adults in their 20s and even into their early 30s. 
It provides leadership development, teaching youths how to become leaders and how to support other young people in the program through spiritual stability, and it encourages the kids in the program to actually run the program. As a Girl Scout leader, I know the value of that type of work. When our troops get a little bit older, we really start putting the dynamic of the meetings and the topics and execution in their hands, and it grows and develops them in so many ways as young leaders. This is a community service program to help kids develop emotional intelligence and active listening skills and to get them to realize and recognize the feelings of others and also build healthy coping skills to promote connections within the communities while setting a strong foundation that will hopefully prevent these kids from making choices that could lead to incarceration in the future. The third program and what I really want to focus on today, and it's the program that Ellen and I talked about, is the Fight for Lifers. So the first step I would tell you to take if you want to learn more about this group, and especially the Lady Lifers of Muncie State Correctional Institute, is to watch the TEDx video I mentioned. It's a song that was written for them by a therapist in the prison, and the song is called This Is Not Our Home. I'm a woman, I'm a grandmother, I'm a daughter, I have a son, I'm not an angel, I'm not the devil, I came to jail when I was so young. In the state of Pennsylvania, only two women sentenced to life sentences received commutation, and that was back in 1989, so almost 30 years ago. It is highly unlikely, even with rehabilitation, good behavior, working to help fellow inmates, that any woman serving a life sentence in this state will ever leave Muncie. When I spoke with Ellen, I wanted to give her some insight about Twisted Philly and how I look at stories like this. And I thought the best way that I could accomplish that was to tell her about the Ms. Rambo episodes, the story of Sylvia Segrist. Yes, Sylvia murdered three people, injured seven others. And yes, Sylvia was in a complete schizophrenic breakdown that her mother anticipated and begged for help from the police, from the state, from medical and legal professionals to prevent. I wanted Ellen to know I was someone with an open mind. Someone who was willing to listen, even if at the end of our conversation, our opinions differed. But I found out we were more aligned than I initially expected. Hi, Dina. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Okay. 
thank you so much for making time to talk with me. Um, no you're probably problem. like, I get this random email from a stranger, and I really no, appreciate you know what? it. It happens all the time. My first question for Ellen was really just to understand how she came to work with the Fight for Lifers. And as I mentioned at the top of this episode, it was a woman named Sharon Wiggins. Getting to know Sharon, her case, and her life at Muncie that compelled Ellen to work with the Fight for Lifers. Back in 2011, when Sharon Wiggins and I reconnected after a brief period of traditional letter correspondence back in 97, I had time to research who she was when she wrote to me again um, in 2011, you know, because we have the Internet. And so I started seeking and researching information about juvenile life without parole in Pennsylvania because she was a juvenile lifer, and I needed help understanding this, and not only for myself, but how to teach my community here in New Hope about this the situation with sending juveniles to die in prison. And so I happened upon Reconstruction, Inc., and one of their domains is Fight for Lifers. So I reached out, I called them, I, and I ended up speaking with William Goldsby, who is the creator of Reconstruction, Inc., and Fight for Lifers. So William was really, really nice and really, really patient, and we had great conversations about juvenile life without parole. I ended up organizing a community meeting here in Fulbury about juvenile life without parole with the idea of sharing the story of Sharon Wiggins with my community. That was back in in 2011. So the the community meeting in Fulbury happened in 2012. Ellen really fell into this. Through her correspondence with Sharon Wiggins, she wanted to better understand the process for juvenile life sentences in Pennsylvania. Now, our state is one that has mandatory sentencing guidelines, meaning regardless of whether or not a judge wants to use his or her judiciary discretion when it comes to sentencing, they can't. Certain convictions in Pennsylvania have mandatory life sentences. Sharon Wiggins, the inmate Ellen talked about with me, passed away in March 2013 in Muncie at the age of 62. She entered prison at the age of 17, and when she passed, she had been the longest-serving female lifer in the state. She'd served 45 years of a life sentence at that point. Besides our rolling green hills and our history and reputation as the birthplace of our nation, Pennsylvania has the unique reputation of sentencing more youth and juvenile offenders to life than any other state in our country. Yeah, I intentionally paused for a good long while to let that sink in. We send more kids to prison for life sentences than any other state in the U.S. In 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled mandatory life sentences without parole for juveniles were unconstitutional. According to the Juvenile Law Center blog, Perusing Justice, Sharon Wiggins was one of approximately 500 juvenile lifers in Pennsylvania waiting for the Pennsylvania Supreme Court to act on that ruling. But she died before she got an answer. To give you a little background on Sharon Wiggins, she grew up surrounded by poverty and neglect. She suffered child abuse, and these environmental circumstances shaped Sharon into the teenager that she became. In 1968, she made a terrible choice. She agreed to join two other local teens and rob a bank. As a result of that choice, a 63-year-old man died at her hands. She did not intend to kill anyone that day, 
She did intend to rob a bank, which obviously is a crime, no doubt. And if you bring a gun with you while you're committing a crime, that adds another layer of guilt, intent, and complexity to your actions, as well as your sentencing. Sharon murdered someone in the execution of a bank robbery, so she was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Sharon is an example of someone who repented for their crimes, someone who focused so much on rehabilitation, recovery, and paying it forward. She earned a degree from Penn State while she was in prison, which I realize may have some of you yelling at me asking, why does she have the right to earn a free degree if she's in jail for murder? That's a good question. And like I said in part one, my feelings change sometimes depending on the case I'm researching. Sharon was a role model and a mentor to fellow inmates. With her degree, she was able to tutor inmates so that they could earn their GEDs. She advocated for women who were raped by prison guards, and she ran a program to help parole violators get their act together. She wasn't just helping fellow lifers. She was helping fellow women, those serving life sentences, and those who would eventually rejoin their communities as ex-offenders. She ran programs to make sure the women who would get out would become productive, contributing members of their community. What struck me about what I learned about Sharon was the level of remorse she felt for her crime. As an adult, she was able to look back at the horrible choices she made that landed her in prison, regardless of her circumstances as a child. Sharon was quoted as saying the sorrow she felt over the death of George Morlock and the pain she caused his family ate at her every day like cancer. I can understand why Ellen was moved by Sharon Wiggins, moved by her story and the work Sharon did while in Muncie to help rehabilitate fellow prisoners. I can understand why she was compelled to work with Reconstruction Inc. and the fight for lifers. Talking about Sharon with Ellen led to a discussion specifically about juvenile lifers, and I wasn't entirely clear on what the state of Pennsylvania considers a juvenile lifer. No, they're under the age of 17, and there's no, there's no minimum age cutoff. It could be 14, it could be 13, wow, whatever, 12. There's no minimum. The maximum is 17 years old. So Fight for Lifers, you know, at the time had three educational components. They were juvenile life without parole, commutation of a life sentence, and post-conviction relief act which is how prisoners can get back into court after their conviction is final. And recently, they've added four more educational initiatives, and they've added women lifers, the elderly, compassionate release slash medical transfer, and the mentally ill. So now we have seven educational initiatives, and I am now the secretary of, of Fight for Lifers. What makes the U.S. different than most of the rest of the world is the way we treat juvenile offenders. And then, when you look at Pennsylvania, we are even worse than the rest of the U.S. There's a total of about 2,500 juvenile lifers in the entire country. And over 400 are in Pennsylvania. And you heard Ellen, juvenile in PA is defined as 17 or younger, even as young as 12 years old. My daughter is 16. I can't imagine her ever doing anything to land her in prison. But as the cliche says, there before the grace of God go I, because I am sure there are hundreds, if not thousands of parents who have thought the same thing. And I think back to when she was 12. God, she was just a little kid. As smart and mature as she is for 16, she's still just a kid now. And she's about the same age Sharon Wiggin was when she entered prison. 
Any homicide, regardless of the age of the child, is immediately transferred to adult court, where here in Pennsylvania, both first- and second-degree murder convictions carry life sentences without the possibility of parole. In Episode 1 of The Good Doctor, I told you a little bit about all seven of Fight for Lifer's areas of education and support for PA inmates serving life in prison. And it was thanks to Ellen that I learned about this organization and the steps they take not only to advocate for prisoners, but also educate communities and government officials and help raise awareness. Ellen and I spent a good bit of time talking about elderly lifers because in the case of Lois Fakarson, she was 88 when she went before the Board of Pardons in 2014. The rate of recidivism continually decreases as inmates age. And to be honest, what the hell is someone going to do to wreak havoc on a community when they are 88 years old, practically bedridden, and cannot walk up and down stairs? It's still mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling for all of us in this fight. We don't understand it. It's, it's like a, a, a mental defect with our elected officials. It's like a, it's a hijacking of the victims' rights coalition where they want life, meaning life. And once somebody receives a life sentence in Pennsylvania, there's no possibility for parole. That's it. Correct. Correct. Um, you mentioned the um, the Post-Conviction Relief Act. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that I wasn't aware of is that in the state of Pennsylvania, someone only has one year after their final appeal to submit evidence that could mean the difference between them spending the rest of their life in prison or coming home. Right. That's called the time bar. That yeah. seems completely unrealistic. It is. And, it's, and, and Fight for Life is, is fighting that. I mean, that's one of our, our initiatives. And we have a man who spearheads that, who spent 40 years in prison and got released by challenging the PCRA. And, you know, we want to make that that disappear. Yeah, the PA Post-Conviction Relief Act, or as Ellen referred to it, the PCRA, means you only have one year from the date of your conviction to submit evidence that could exonerate you or at least get someone to take a look at your case again. And sure, it's not all innocent people in prison trying to prove their innocence because they were wrongfully convicted. There are a shitload of guilty people in prisons. There are a load of people who have committed horrific crimes. But regardless, one year isn't much time to take action when you think of how long it can take to submit appeals and gather evidence, share evidence with prosecutors if that's required, all of the steps someone has to follow. Steps the average person like you or me really doesn't know anything about, or at least I don't know much about it. I asked Ellen what happens if evidence comes to light, maybe let's say five years after someone's window of appeal, or the time bar, as Ellen called it. What happens when that ends, especially because of the constant advances in technology for DNA testing and science? What do you do? There's three ways to challenge the PCR time bar. And one is, you know, case law that comes down from the Supreme Court. One is prosecutorial or, or government interference um, where they withheld in, where you discover that they've withheld information. And one is ineffective counsel. And you really have to show that there was no way that you could possibly have ascertained this information within that one year time period. And that's due diligence. And if you can prove due diligence that you've worked your butt off behind bars and with your supporters on the outside, that can make a difference. But it's very time-consuming and it's very expensive, which you have to buy a lot of transcripts, 
a lot of records, and it requires people going downtown to these offices and trying to navigate the system. And, and family and friends often have no idea how to navigate that. So for a prisoner to have a supporter who will go the mile for you or the mile is few and far between. And every t- the second Tuesday of each month, we have a public meeting from family, friends, supporters, anybody that needs educating about any of those seven educational initiatives, we guide them on that journey. We don't do the actual work for them, but we help them to find that information. Fight for Lifers acts as an educational resource for friends and families trying to navigate the court system, families who are trying to execute their due diligence and gather court documents. It points them in the right direction. Now, I can tell you just from my own experiences with case research for true crime episodes, it isn't always easy, especially when you want to get court transcripts or other court records. Just last week, for example, I received approval from Lehigh County from the Pennsylvania Right to Know Act request I submitted ages ago for the court transcripts of David Packer's sexual abuse case from 2011. This is in part research that I need for the episodes about Grace Packer that are going to start releasing in just about another week or so. David was Grace Packer's adoptive father who assaulted both her and a foster sibling over a period of three to four years between 2006 and 2010. My request was approved. Now I have to go to Lehigh County Courthouse with my approval and pay 25 cents per page for a copy of the transcripts. They didn't tell me how many pages this document is. It could be 500 pages. Do I show up with rolls of quarters? I'm obviously going to bring a lot of cash with me. Okay, side note. Last week, I was arguing with someone on the internet. I know it's really stupid to do that. And I try to avoid it, but I just couldn't help myself. So I was on a Facebook group about podcasts and the topic of the cost of creating and maintaining a show. And I was commenting on that cost, especially research expenses. And there were a few folks who questioned the validity of my claims. So I say, suck on that, because this is what many of us do. We hunt down court records like private investigators, and it's more than just gas and mileage. Sometimes you have to pay for those records. It's not all public domain. Okay, my side note rant is over. When I think about what I have to do for Twisted Philly when it comes to securing court documents, what I have at stake is very different than a family trying to prove someone's innocence. For me, it's about credibility and telling an authentic and well-researched story, which is important, but that's nothing compared to someone facing the ticking clock of Pennsylvania's Post-Conviction Relief Act. Ellen and I talked about the challenges of elderly lifers, the annual cost of supporting inmates serving life sentences, and, of course, the unique challenges faced by women lifers. Out of over 5,000 inmates serving life sentences in Pennsylvania, only 200 are women. And I can tell you that 50% of the 200, give or take, women lifers, 50% are over the age of 50. And according to the Department of Corrections, 50 years is geriatric. That's when health declines and that's when costs go up. And that's when recidivism goes down. For healthy young lifer, it's 48000 and there could be some more costs that haven't been uncovered yet. So you're looking at a minimum of 48000 at the beginning of a life sentence of a healthy person. 
and we have about 5,100 lifers. 200 of them are women. Only 200 lifers are women. It's such a small population of the prison system in Pennsylvania. And I wondered if our correctional facilities in this state are really equipped to support female inmates. I asked Ellen about services that might be available to these women, and she said not many. It's a real problem. We're talking sexism, discrimination. These women lifers are truly marginalized, truly locked away and forgotten. Currently, Fight for Lifers has funding to do a program at Muncie where we would be taking a curriculum that William Goldsby designed where we will be training the lifers about how to create community capacity building to women who have a release date so that when these women can get out who are not lifers, they can go back to their communities and learn how to be effective members of an organizing body. So that is the first program that Fight for Lifers has gotten approval by the Muncie administration to do. And we are in that development stage right now. What Ellen described is so much like the work Sharon Wiggins did in Muncie before she passed away. Tutoring fellow inmates, helping them earn their GED, coaching them in life skills, helping them get back on track if they'd violated parole. Just basically working with others who would one day be eligible for release, even if she wasn't. And I know what a couple of you are thinking right now. Those of you who know me very well, like Heather, Jen and Meredith, Stacy, Jackie, a few others that I might not have named. You're thinking Dina wants to go to Muncie and provide coaching and development to these women. And you would be right. You're thinking Dina wants to work with Fight for Lifers, and you would also be right. I haven't yet figured out how I'm going to do that, let alone find the time, but I'm going to start small. While Ellen and I talked, she mentioned the meetings with Fight for Lifers, and right now they're looking for someone to design a flyer for them about an educational initiative. That's something I know how to do. And I'm planning on attending a meeting in the near future so I can meet Ellen, continue learning about the programs that Fight for Lifers offers and the Lady Lifers at Muncie, and maybe design a flyer for their organization. So where does Lois fit into all this? Certainly, she was an elderly lifer, one that I think should have received commutation, one that I wish would have been eligible for compassionate release, but neither of those options were available to her. It was her story that led me to you. And, you know, looking at pictures of her as an 80 to 90 year old woman, it was just, it was incredibly sad. Yeah, it is. It's incredibly sad. It's tragic. It goes against any kind of sense of morality in whatever religion or God or not God you believe in. There's absolutely nothing moral about what they did to Lois Carson. Lois passed away in January of 2017. She was in Cambridge Springs, a facility north of Pittsburgh that had better resources, sure, but was far away from the women with whom she'd lived half her life. Ellen had a chance to visit Lois before she died, while she was visiting the Cambridge Springs facility. She was there to meet with lady lifers and talk with them about the programs offered by Fight for Lifers and encouraging them to apply for commutation. Ellen didn't know Lois personally, and she only met her this one time. But she shared her visit with me, and we shared our outrage over a 91-year-old woman being refused release when she'd never killed anyone. I specifically asked to get a tour of the infirmary. I know what the infirmary at Muncie looks like. 
And it's a dark, hideous, depressing, old dungeon. Even though it's above ground, there's, like, no natural light that filters into the windows. So it's, it's just awful. It's awful, awful, awful. But at Cambridge Springs, the infirmary is, is like one big room, and it's got big windows, and it's, you know, it's all, you know, white, and it looks sort of sterile and modern, kind of. And and that's where I saw Lois. She was bedridden. And, you know, the the woman who's in charge of the infirmary, you know, she left me. You know, she didn't, I wasn't, like, supervised or anything. I had, you know, several lifer women there working and sitting with me. And, and I introduced myself to Lois and Betty Scott, who's also a lifer, who's bedridden as well. And, you know, we just had this wonderful experience, this wonderful conversation, and kind of got the idea that Lois really is this intelligent, nice, elderly woman who just kind of accepted where she was. You know, she wasn't really bitter or anything like that. She was very grateful of the women lifers that, that work there who attended her, all of her needs, you know, showering, eating, you know, reading to her, being her friend. That left me feeling, you know, okay, this is the, this is the worst case scenario, but she's being well cared for. She's loved. You know, the problem with Lois's situation with commutation or medical relief she wasn't terminal. She was just old, really old. And in Pennsylvania, that doesn't get you out on medical transfer or, or compassionate relief. There's no compassion for people like Lois or Carson. Lois Vacarson's story will stick with me long after this episode ends. And not just her story, but the stories of other women serving life in prison in Pennsylvania, like Sharon Wiggins and Trina Garnett, who is one of the women featured in the Lady Lifers video, This Is Not My Home. Trina started her life sentence at the ripe old age of 14. She grew up in Chester, Pennsylvania. That's a town in Delaware County, close to the edge of Delaware. Trina was the youngest of 12 children, and she grew up suffering frequent physical abuse at the hands of her alcoholic father, which got worse after her mother died when she was only nine years old. Trina suffered from developmental issues and mental illness. She was diagnosed as schizophrenic and was even institutionalized between the ages of 11 and 13 before entering Muncie State Correctional Institute when she was only 14. Why was Trina sentenced to life in prison? She was playing with fire, literally. She and another child were seen setting a small fire near a building in Chester. And unfortunately, the fire got out of their control. It spread and engulfed the building, and it burned for two hours before firefighters could put out the blaze. Tragically, two young children were killed in that fire, 13-year-old Brian Harvey and his six-year-old little brother Derek. And since this is Pennsylvania, and homicide means automatic classification as an adult crime, Trina's case was transferred to adult court 
She was convicted of arson, among a number of other charges, including second-degree murder, which, again, in Pennsylvania, carries a mandatory life sentence. The judge who oversaw Trina's trial said this was the saddest case he'd ever handled, even though she was found incompetent to stand trial multiple times due to both her mental illness and developmental issues. Once she was convicted, there was absolutely nothing the judge could do to intervene with her sentence. Now, I'm not suggesting the lives of those two little boys who died in that fire don't deserve someone to pay for that. But Trina's actions weren't an intentional homicide. She had a low IQ, she had severe mental illness and schizophrenia, and at 14, with both of those issues, it was as if she had the mental acumen of a much younger child. Yet she received a life sentence. She accidentally started a fire that got out of control. Pretty soon after Trina entered Muncie, she was raped by a prison guard and had the baby in jail when she was just about, I don't know, I guess 15 or 16 years old. Eventually, one of her older sisters won custody of the baby and raised him on her behalf. By 2012, when Trina was 50 and had been in jail for 36 years, she developed MS and was confined to a wheelchair. She was moved to Cambridge Springs, the same facility where Ellen visited Lois Vacarson last year, but it was so far away from Trina's family, who'd relocated to Harrisburg to be close to her, that Trina asked to be transferred back to Muncie. She gave up better medical treatment so she could be closer to her family. Trina is still in prison. I know this because I sent her a message through Connect Network, a system that enables two-way messaging between inmates and the average citizen. I was hoping when I searched to add an inmate, I wouldn't find Trina's name. But when I couldn't find anything about a release, even though I hoped she was eligible because of that Supreme Court ruling in 2012, I was afraid I would still find her in prison. And I did. And here's the challenge and the struggle with that Supreme Court ruling that declared juvenile life without parole unconstitutional. Not every case is like Trina's. And when you think about elderly lifers, not every case is like Lois Fakarson. Some inmates who could be eligible for commutation as a result of the Supreme Court ruling committed intentional violent acts. So how do you decide? Is this an all or nothing ruling? I don't think so. I think there are so many factors that must be reviewed and considered. But regardless of whether or not someone is eligible for parole or pardon or commutation as a result of this ruling, I do think we have to do something in our prisons to provide a better quality of life for people living there. If the state is going to take on caring for someone for the rest of their life, regardless of why they are in prison, there should be a basic minimum of care. One of the questions I asked Ellen was where can people in PA go if they want to learn more, if they want more information, or if they're interested in volunteering? I assumed some people would want to learn more or maybe like me might even want to volunteer. If you don't have any interest in learning more about these organizations, I totally understand. And I'll say ciao for now and encourage you to come back for our next episode next week. And there's no love lost. I respect your perspective. If you do want more information, then stick with me and Ellen for just a few more minutes because she shared so much with me about Fight for Lifers and other organizations connected to this one in Philly and other parts of Pennsylvania. It helps to connect with one lifer. I have found, that's how it happened to me. I connected with one lifer, and that was Sharon Wiggins. And then she inspired me to meet some of her lifer friends. And so what I did after I was on her approved visitors list, I became an official visitor with the Pennsylvania Prison Society. 
that gives me the opportunity, the privilege, to visit any incarcerated person in Pennsylvania. You know, there's organizations like Reconstruction Fight the Lifers who are always seeking supporters and volunteers to do, do research, take notes, write editorials, write letters to prisoners, you know, whatever. I mean, we, we have so much on our plate right now to reach out to legislators to teach them about these seven educational initiatives. So we're always looking for writers and editors and, you know, people that can design flyers, you know, whatever. You know, there's this other website that I'm involved with called the Women Lifers Resume Project of Pennsylvania, and it's WLRPPA.org. And that website collects prison accomplishments of women serving life without parole. It has nothing to do with their crime or their life before their crime. It's all about all their accomplishments and transformation since being incarcerated. Twisters, I want to thank you for coming back for part two. Like the second half of Ms. Rambo, the story about Sylvia Segrist, this episode was a little different. I'm continually wandering down paths that I never expected to take since starting Twisted Philly. I meet people that I never expected to encounter, and every time I do, I'm opened to a new perspective. Sometimes I wholeheartedly agree with those perspectives, and sometimes I still find myself questioning. For this and the lady lifers and the circumstances surrounding all lifers in Pennsylvania, I feel like I'm doing a little bit of both. I'm considering new perspectives, but I'm also questioning whether or not I should be. And I think that's okay. I think that's the point of an episode like this. I want to provide some information to make you think and question. And if at the end of those questions, you still feel the same way, I'm grateful that you listened. That's what matters to me. I want to thank Ellen for all the time that she gave me. There's parts of our conversation that I didn't include. That was us shooting the shit as moms and women who either are or were married to musicians. I'm really looking forward to meeting her at an upcoming Fight for Lifers meeting later this month. I also want to thank Emmy Sarah for the music you heard in this episode. You can find out more about Emmy on her website at emmysarah.com. That's E-M-M-Y-C-E-R-R-A dot com. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.